Did you know that in March this year, a US man allegedly planned to bomb a hospital caring for COVID-19 patients in the US, and that in May, a French man was arrested for plotting to target places of worship once the lockdown had been lifted in France? Both have been engaging with far-right violent extremist content and have their motivations accelerated by the health crisis. But the term boogaloo, originating with a 1984 film breaking two electric boogaloo and turning an internet meme, has become a synonym for an upcoming civil war in the US. That the Christchurch shooter dedicated an entire section of his manifesto to accelerationism as a tactic for victory. This is Tech Against Terrorism, and I'm Megan Jana. And I'm Adam Hadley. In this episode, we take a deep dive into far-right violent extremists' call for violence to accelerate the collapse of society as we know it, otherwise known as accelerationism. To fully comprehend what this means and why it matters in today's counterterrorism discussion, we'll take a look back at the origin of this doctrine before turning to its increasing popularity amongst far-right violent extremists and terrorists, especially online. What are the similarities between the Christchurch shooter and the men behind the recently thwarted plot in the US and France? Besides all of them having their motivations rooted in far-right violent extremists, they are all believed to have been reading accelerationist material when preparing their attacks. For the latter two, their plans to act are believed to have been motivated or rather accelerated by the COVID-19 crisis. Anyone with half a brain and enough time can find the information to realise that accelerationism is the last resort of the white man of the modern age, so says a Discord user. Summarising in a few words, the importance of accelerationism has taken within the far-right violent extremist and terrorist space in recent years. According to these people, our modern societies are corrupted to the core and on the brink of collapse because of so-called degenerate values of multiculturalism, liberalism, feminism, and diversity. In other words, a lot of the things that we hold dear in democratic society. For them, they're keen on accelerating the collapse of society. And for these people, this is the only manner that they believe they can bring true change, and ideally a new world order founded on white supremacist and neo-Nazi values. Accelerationist beliefs have become increasingly popular amongst far-right violent extremists in recent years and only seem to gain in prominence. Beyond its increased visibility in the online space, accelerationism has been a key ideological factor in a number of attacks in 2019. Moreover, 2020 appears to have been the year many accelerationists have been waiting for. The COVID-19 crisis, its ensuing lockdown, the social unrest in the US following the death of George Floyd, all have proven to be fertile ground for accelerationist actors to exploit. To help us understand what accelerationism is, why it has become a flagship doctrine of far-right violent extremism, and how it is reflected online, we are joined by Professor Matthew Feldman and Ashton Kingdom. Matthew is the director of the Centre of Analysis of the Radical Right, CAR, and also an expert on fascist ideology, neo-Nazism, and so-called lone actor terrorism. His research has also focused on siege culture, a key tenet of neo-Nazi accelerationism, as we will see during this podcast. Ashton is a PhD student at the University of Southampton and a fellow at CAR. Her research focuses on how far-right extremists use technology, and the internet in particular, for recruitment and radicalisation. Her latest articles, The Gift of the Gab and I Predict a Riot, analyse how violent extremists have been exploiting the COVID-19 crisis and the death of George Floyd. For today's episode, we are also welcoming a third guest. So stay with us until the end to hear Ben Makush discuss accelerationism from his perspective as a journalist. Matthew, Ashton, it's a great pleasure to have you here today on the Tech Against Terrorism podcast. Welcome to the show. First off, let's go back to the origin of the term and what it implies. I believe that accelerationism is originally an apolitical doctrine in the sense of advocating for the accelerated collapse of a societal order to replace it by a new one without specifying what political belief should underpin this new order. Matthew Ashton, could you tell us a bit more about the key tenets of accelerationism, its history and its appropriation by far-right bound extremists? Sure. I actually think accelerationism can be bundled into three overlapping but pretty distinct things. The first is the doctrine that we want to, it's a political doctrine, that if we can support something that overthrows 
you know, it's basically my enemy's enemy is my friend that overthrows the current system that oppresses us, we will support it. The classic example going back in history would be, for example, the revolutionary defensism of Lenin and the Bolsheviks a hundred years ago. Accelerationism, general context, is a very uh, broad concept that essentially means rooting for the people who are fighting your enemies to win. In its more narrow context, a generation ago or so, um, a philosopher based in Britain named Nick Land coined the term accelerationism as part of a wider kind of technological revolt against modernity. It was called the Dark Enlightenment, and he published a number of works that were sort of philosophical um, in the 1990s. Now, that was the more apolitical accelerationism that you're talking about, and I think that that's really where we owe the term is it didn't, re it didn't exist as a term before Nick Land came along and started talking about this idea of sort of pushing fragile systems over the edge so that they collapse. More specifically, and not directly linked to Nick Land, is a form of Nazi accelerationism that probably is better called siege culture. And that emerged in the last five or seven years by a number of neo-Nazi activists, um, particularly prominently online and dotted around the world, but particularly prominently in, in the UK and, and in the US. Now that we have come to call accelerationism, but is really nothing more than a sort of exacerbation, making extreme a doctrine that is already in the heart of Nazism, which is a revolution to overcome liberal democracy. The certain um, type or way in which this accelerationism is presented is very much in keeping with James Mason's ideas in siege. And I think that when people are talking about extreme right accelerationism, what they really mean is siege culture, which has sort of emerged on the scene in the last, um, you know, over the last decade. Yeah, I completely agree with um, what Matthew is saying, particularly in terms of what I've seen on the platforms that I've been on, mainly re in relation to siege culture um, cropping up over the past sort of five, ten years, mainly since the creation of Iron March, and then it's sort of been escalated from then. But I don't necessarily believe that the people that are using this imagery understand um the key origins of it that's one thing i will say well that's a really interesting background into accelerationism and how it came to be appropriated by the extreme far right matthew you mentioned siege culture and james mason he also wrote a lot about leaderless resistance if i'm not wrong could you redevelop on how leaderless resistance linked back to accelerationism yes so i think again when we're talking about you know, extreme right accelerationism, we're really talking about James Mason's ideas, which is wrong because, you know, radical right accelerationism is more than that, but it has come prominent, particularly because of uh, neo-Nazi groups like Adam Waffen Division and, and National Action and others. I think the core of this that all scholars, as far as I can tell, have wrong, maybe with one or two honorable exceptions, and sadly I'm not uh, amongst them, is that the idea of leaderless resistance was really popularized by a man named Louis Beam in the early 1990s. He wrote a text by that name. It was taken up by a number of, uh, this concept of kind of lone wolf or leaderless resistance was taken up by a number of um, neo-Nazis in the United States, Alex Curtis and Tom Metzger in the 1990s. And then it sort of came home to roost most horrifically in 1999 with David Copeland. And that's where it sort of arrived as a practice. But I think the thing that we've all gotten wrong was that a decade before Louis Beam was writing Legalist Resistance, James Mason was using the phrase lone wolf. He also used the phrase lone eagles and one man armies in his siege pamphlets that were originally published between uh, about the summer of 1980 and the summer of 1986. Given the way that texts travel the United States at that time, it's all but impossible for me to conceive that Louis Beam and a number of other people who, people who developed the ideas didn't originally get it from James Mason's writings um, in Siege in the early 1980s. He's really the sort of founding father of neo-Nazi lone wolf terrorism. So you both mentioned Atom Waffen Division and Iron March, the online neo-Nazi forum No Defense. I find it quite interesting that Atom Waffen Division, which sort of became the um, flagship of isolationism and siege culture, was kind of born out of an online forum. Based on that, could you develop on this emergence and the importance of isolationism nowadays within the far right violent extremist online sphere? I spent a lot of time on a platform called Fascist Forge, which was like 
um, what emerged after Iron March was taken offline and also a like counter platform that sort of linked um, called Siege Culture. It's now called Universal Order, but it's got the same URL. Um, and it is very much this accelerationism is a key uh, narrative within their propaganda. So what you see now um, in the midst of the coronavirus and the George Floyd pandemic is this propaganda being repackaged to coincide with particular events. But it actually stems from the forums Iron March and Siege Culture. Now, to be part of these forums, you have to read James Mason's Siege which links back to what Matthew was saying, like a, a lot of these people that follow this ideology now weren't actually reading this when it came out and don't necessarily understand where all of the ideas are coming from. Um, there's a lot of an obsession with Charles Manson, for example, and what he was saying about Helter Skelter, which isn't actually correct to what he was saying in the propaganda. So I think it's really interesting to see how these forums not only sort of birth new forums when they come down, but also the way that the same narratives travel and are misconstrued depending on particular events. To continue on those particular events and the repackaging that we've seen in 2020, your most recent article, Ashton, are talking about this exploitation of the COVID-19 crisis and George Floyd death and all the social unrest that followed in the US. Could you develop a bit more on that and how they're using that for their own interests and to recruit new members? Yeah, so I spend, because I'm in the middle of my PhD at the moment, I spend a hell of a lot of time on different forums. And to me, the platforms aren't the important thing about my research, it's the narrative. So there's a few key accelerationist subcultures, like loosely linked subcultures that have merged. Obviously, you've got like Matt was saying, this neo-Nazi, Iron March, James uh, Mason siege culture. Then you've got eco-fascism. You've got the anti-government extremism as well in there. So you've got these like different narratives emerging and they're coming up on every single platform. So for example, if you look on Russian platforms like VK, you've got eco-fascist propaganda coming up. So back in the day, you'd have fascism, it was sort of conform or else. Then when you had national socialism, race became the most important part of that. And then with eco-fascism, the environment becomes the most important part. So essentially, they're using the coronavirus pandemic to kind of insinuate that this is the thing that will kickstart this new movement and replace whoever is in government so they accelerate the collapse of capitalism and then who will be in charge will recommend that the environment in comes before all so that's an interesting narrative that's emerged if you go on to the um the dark web i was on there last week just doing something for some other research that i'm doing and even if you go on the daily stormer like the first thing that comes up is we're preparing for an apocalypse you know we're in the middle of a race war preparing for that and when you come onto the sort of N-chan, 8chan, 8chan forums, they're swapping this like race war that was, became such a big issue and narrative with the George Floyd protests, but they're turning it around from its black versus whites to actually against Jewish people. So if you go onto the dark web, the narrative has changed and it's, oh, we need to accelerate capitalism, capitalism's evil, who's in control of capitalism, and then those really old, deep-rooted prejudices against Jewish people come out as well. So it's really interesting to see how they are all coalescing together on completely different platforms. That's really interesting, especially the difference in the discourse use, I believe. To continue on the kind of platform we use, so you mentioned quite a few flashes for Jubeki, but do you also see accelerationist propaganda popping up on more mainstream platforms, mainstream social media such as Twitter, Facebook, or YouTube, or even Instagram those days? Yeah, I mean, you do see it everywhere. And this is the link between who's disseminating the propaganda and what their core narratives are. So, for example, the way that I have a conceptual framework of the way that I use imagery is I look at the universal meaning within memes and images. So what will everyone that's looking at that agree upon? 
so the universal message, and then the inherent crystallizations within specific memes that will have specific meanings based on what platform they're shared on at particular moments in time. So you can see accelerationist propaganda on mainstream platforms, mainly relating to anti-government extremism that I've seen and this kind of kickstarting of a race war. It's a lot more palatable when you look at platforms like Instagram. It's not going to be the sort of things that you would see on the dark web. Like there is just a completely different like narrative going on there. But yeah, the main... Um, accelerationist propaganda that I've seen on like mainstream platforms is to do with anti-government extremism. Again, like I said, you can coincide like Charles um, Manson propaganda with the release of the second season of Mindhunter. You know, people get into it. They become familiar with who, they, who he is, what his messages were, and they're more likely to then engage in those sorts of narratives, which, as I said before, are actually incorrect the way that they're being disseminated now. But I haven't seen really intense like neo-Nazi propaganda on surface platforms. And as I said in the article that I did for GNET, when they got rid of Fascist Forge, you could see them migrating over to sort of more right-wing populist forums like Gab, which I found really interesting because I'd never seen that sort of content on Gab until they shut down Fascist Forge. So it seems that manifestos are especially important where the violent far right is concerned. For example, the Christchurch shooter, just like the El Paso and the Halley attackers, and of course Alexander Breivik years before, had all posted manifestos online before committing their attacks. Tell us more about this phenomenon of online manifestos and how they're linked to accelerationism, if they can be. Well, I would say they're not directly linked to accelerationism, and only insofar as that, again, that's a term that just no one used five years ago. Uh, Nick Lane came up with it 20 years ago, and it refers to a concept that, that arguably is probably Trotskyism is the closest, you know, kind of analog to it. If what we're talking about is revolutionary right, or in this case, neo-Nazi attempts to overthrow the system of government, of course, there have been examples and indeed, there have been lone wolf so-called examples going right back to David Copeland, which is, again, some 20 years ago. Um, I've also participated in cases as uh, an expert witness amongst uh, several cases over the last decade where, again, people are writing various forms of manifestos. One was called the Waffen SS UK Members Handbook. And like the Brevik Manifesto, um, was written for an audience that didn't exist or that was in the process of being created, like the Knights Templar. You know, these had one, uh, one member, this, this, the particular tractarian or ideologue who's releasing um, or, or compiling manifestos to, um, to scare or convert uh, the population at large. And that phenomenon actually is much more familiar than what we'd seen just with the horrors of Brevik, of course. Um, in the last couple of years, there have been a, a rash of these, including Patrick Crucius in the United States, also John T. Ernest left a manifesto, uh, and of course, Brenton Tarrant left a 74-page document uh, called The Great Replacement, modeled on the sort of Great Replacement Theory of Bernard Camus, um, just before he killed 51 people in Christchurch. There was also a multi-hundred, I think nearly 400-page manifesto by someone who reminds us when we start thinking, oh, all these guys are young white men. So that's what our profile needs to be. Um, a man named James Von Brunn wrote a 400-page manifesto, deeply anti-Semitic, and then shot up a Holocaust uh, museum in, I believe, the late 90s. He was 93 years old. Um, and I think that it's important to remember that this tactic of, of sort of, be, you know, kind of initiating yourself as a lone soldier and going out and attacking innocent people who you, you regard as basically you're in a war with, that lone wolf tactic, which again was popularized, put first put forward by James Mason, was then popularized uh, in the 1990s by Louis Bean and a number of other uh, American-based neo-Nazis, uh, started to become prevalent late. Um, 1990s and then and spread internationally thereafter. That sort of um, playbook, that sort of guide is itself that is transnational, 
uh, that is generation long or two generation long for the radical right. So those are not new things. Similarly, the idea of exploitation after a terrorist attack is a very, very familiar tactic. And the, the idea that the radical right, that neo-Nazis are using that shouldn't surprise us. Um, again, I think one of the things that's really important to note here is that some of us who've been working in this area for a long time will have seen a number of these manifestos um, that are that have been written you know, for years and years and years. So they didn't just really start with Brevik or with Tarrant. Those two, by contrast, were sort of keying into a longer standing trends that I think um, are, are visible uh, this century and even into the last century. So I guess moving on, my next question will be on the increased media attention that has been given to isolationism lately. So we see more and more newspapers, especially in the US, talking about that and how about it's a threat to our societies. However, as I just said, it's mostly in the US that they talk about it. It might give the impression that accelerationism is only a US phenomenon. Is that right or mistaken assumption that everything is all right elsewhere? I'll, I just answer briefly that guns are the American phenomenon here. That's what's different about the United States. And of course, ready access to guns can lead to acts of accelerationist terrorism, like we saw with uh, Patrick Crucius or John D. Ernest's attempted attacks. Um, so I think that's one thing that is very different. Once we're talking about other uh, types of elements, and again, there's a broad range, as we've seen um, very appallingly in the last 10 years, of, of different types of terrorist attack. And that's before we get into the cyber terrorism or other forms of state-based terrorism, individual sub-state actors have used everything from um, castor beans and vehicles to much more sophisticated chemical biological agents and bombs, um, you know, to try to wreak havoc on a society that they feel that they're at war with. Um, in that sense, I think the one difference that we've seen and one of the reasons that things are tend to be, body counts tend to be higher in America is just ready access to guns, which in some cases has really become a sort of, um, you know, go-to weapon. Think of Robert Bowers, you know, shooting up um, a synagogue only a couple of years ago. Um, those things are possible in other countries, but they happen with such less frequency that we can actually say that these mass shootings, whether they are school shootings, spree shootings, the product of mental illness, um, or indeed terrorist shootings, you know, happen more in America than the rest of the world put together. Yeah, just to add to that, because I completely agree. One of the key things that I've noticed, as I said, in sort of unpicking different narratives and how they all link together within different groups of different ideologies, everyone wants a race war, right? If you're looking at these neo-Nazi sort of narratives, their propaganda that's coming out, they want a race war. Now you're seeing it emerge in America with the George Floyd protests, um, issues of race coming out, issues of a race war again, where they're mixing in with these other narratives. A lot of what contemporary neo-Nazis believe in stems from Siege, and a lot of what is in Siege is from the Turner Diaries. And the thing that, if anyone's read it, that kicked it all off is the current act. So people coming away, taking their guns, taking their weapons away from them. So I think it's really important to realize that actually a lot of these narratives intersect and sort of influence and propel each other. And this sort of issue with the guns is coming into countries where, as Matthew was saying, we don't have easy access to guns. But the sentiment is the same. Like accelerationists are everywhere. They're on every platform, mainstream, dark web, like slightly more sinister platforms on um, the surface web, like Gab, you know, the right-wing platforms, they're everywhere. It's not just based in America. But I think the easy accessibility of weapons and the culture around weapons does also fuel the likelihood of an attack occurring. All of our work at Tech Against Terrorism is focused on supporting smaller tech platforms in tackling the terrorist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. So we're really interested in learning from guests about hearing about what they think the tech sector should be doing to improve matters. What recommendations would you give to tech platforms, especially the smallest ones, to counter the spread of accelerationism online? So I think, and I've, I've spoken with executives, I've spoken with practitioners, uh, I should say IT um, executives. And so I think that as far as I can tell, there's two problems here. One is that, that these tend to be much more focused on and, and home to 
uh, accelerationism on smaller platforms. I think there's no doubt about that. That it, you know this stuff does exist on the larger platforms, um, but that you know they're they're eager and anxious to get off with it, uh, get it off you know of those platforms. Whereas some of the smaller platforms like Steam or Discord or Gab, uh, Ashton earlier mentioned VK, you know are willing to host these. I think the difference is, of course, that the big four, your Facebooks and Twitters and Googles and YouTube, you know, that's, that's more than nine-tenths of the internet. And so I think that the problems are different. One of them is about small platforms hosting really extreme material that can radicalize or even lead people to political violence. And then the other one is about material that's not as extreme, but is seen by, you know, 20 times more people, 10 or 20 times more people on the main sites and some of those can of course lead to lead people to to more extreme materials doesn't simply just work as a sort of ladder of extremism or as a you know, sort of slide um, but one can lead to the other the algorithms on youtube can in times lead people to then go and look at bit shoot or you know some of the more at gab for more extreme content so those those problems do exist but i think that it is. It seems to be mistaken to suggest to lump, and I'm not suggesting you do this, uh, Megan, but to lump big platforms and small platforms together because they seem to me like apples and oranges in terms of facing this problem. Yeah, one thing that is really important to me is my research doesn't look at any of the large platforms. It's all about sort of the hidden away niche, more sinister platforms. I did a conference in um, October. I was presenting my research from Fascist Forge. I spent about eight months on that. And the one thing that I really wanted to get across to people, because the argument was that so many people focus on the big tech platforms and how we can prevent extremism on there. How can we prevent radicalizations? How can we use artificial intelligence to help combat extremism? You've got these Web 1.0 old school forums where the most disgusting radical people are that don't have as much attention placed on them and when i was really looking at each member of fascist forge and who they were they were paramedics one of them was a primary school teacher they were like the ordinary people hidden amongst society that you would never suspect and that was the thing that really frightened me and thought we really need to be looking at people out of stereotypes of who's a right-wing extremist and see that these sorts of more sinister ideologies are more widespread. And it's not necessarily about employing technologies to help combat them, but rather, and this is what I do, really understand the core narratives of the propaganda that's potentially radicalizing people to try and re-educate people and combat it that way rather than just deploying AI and machine learning and like taking down um, propaganda that might not be as potentially dangerous as some of the platforms that are more hidden. So I think that's really important in, in combating it, like understanding the different narratives. And Ashton, if, if I may ask a question, how, how do you feel this is going to change over the next few years? Are, are, we, are we winning this battle in combating the extreme far-right use of the internet. What's the direction of travel in this regard, do you think? A lot of my research also focuses on artificial intelligence and not only the way that it's used by extremists, but the way it can be used to prevent them. And I, I don't think that platforms are transparent enough about their technology. So, for example, one of the things I argue is just because you tell someone you're using deep learning or you're using machine learning doesn't mean that they know. Or just because someone tells you doesn't mean you understand what they're saying, right? So I think this is a key thing. I think a lot of people do not understand the technology that is suggesting content to them. Like, regardless if people are saying we employ deep learning, people don't understand it. I think that is a key problem. There is a problem with people becoming more susceptible to the extreme narratives. I don't know if any of you have come across this recently, but so many of my friends who were usually rational people are going down the like QAnon rabbit hole of, you know, conspiracy theories because of things that they've seen on, on the big tech platform. So I think that combating that is a thing I think we need to focus on the smaller 
platforms with the older technologies, right? This goes right back to like when you were looking at Al Qaeda and the way they were communicating was just logging into an email and not actually sending it, but say the other person could log into the same email and read it. And it's just like some of the old school technologies are winning here in terms of being able to radicalize more people. So yeah, I don't think we're winning any wars at the moment. I know that's quite depressing, but <laughs> yeah, I think it is still a really big problem. And, and what would you say had changed over the past five years, for example? Because clearly the internet has been around for quite a long time now. Facebook is, is not a yeah. Um Yeah, so I actually like, like the main thing that I talk about in my research in terms of technology is the socio-technical approach. So what's happening in society? What is going on at this moment in time? Obviously, if you're talking about the last five years, the things I talk about are you know, the Syrian civil war, the increased 2015 migration crisis, the 2008 financial collapse. Where are these economic migrants and refugees coming in from Africa? They're hitting the nations of places like Spain, Italy on the borders that are already economically weak. Combine that with an extreme rise in nationalism. Now we're facing a severe economic recession. You're gonna have a lot of unemployed people, a lot of disenfranchised people. And I think that if you are angry and annoyed with the state, with society, you don't fit in, you've got things missing from your roles, you are more likely to be attracted to these narratives. So I think that actually it's mainly to do with a combination of both half tech, half what's going on in society. If everything was lovely and fluffy in the world, would these people really be using this technology to talk to other extreme people? Probably not. I do think that if we're talking about these trends, and I, I would, everything everything that Ashton says is that, you know, absolutely spot on, but I do think if we're talking about the last five or ten years, the elephant in the room really is social media. You know, it existed, of course, in the first decade of the 20th century, but didn't really find its feet, I guess you could say, for lack of a better pun, until, you know, really the last decade. And, um, I th- you know, I'm probably not the best person to consult about this, but there's something like, you know, it's it's sort of like the crack of the internet. It really is the sort of the, you know, micro blogging and the sort of the, the quick hit of just looking, you know, online. It seems, you know, it seems to take away a, 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 a maybe a, a layer potentially of responsibility from people self-censoring or doing normally the things that you wouldn't just say to someone's face. Um, and I do wonder how much, and I'm, I, I don't know if the question's even answerable at this point, um, whether or not research has been done on it, but how much, in a sense, social media may be seeming to, to, to coarsen our, our, our discussion online in this case. I'm, I, and I'm no saint, you know, I'm not, I'm not sitting here saying that every, every engagement I have on, on social media is, you know, it's always correct and professional, I, you know, have erred as well. But I can't wonder if if the rise of social media has to do with something fueling what are ultimately simplistic, conspiratorial, you know, one sentence solutions to to a complex world and complex problems. Could you not also argue that social media, the Internet, is an example of flattening communication between people? So it could, could happen through social media. It could be various other things. Uh, and therefore it's reducing kind of friction to communications and therefore opening society up to uh, m- many of these uh, concerns uh, that would otherwise have been held at bay because of the difficulty uh, for communities and individuals to communicate with one, one another. I mean, yes, there, I'm not going to, this is a terrible analogy, Adam, but just to, to, to draw it maybe in conclusion, you know, there are those kinds of people that say guns don't kill people, people kill people, right? You know, like, in a sense, that's obviously true. A gun is just an object, but you have a lot of these objects around. The likelihood of people getting angry and then resorting to using guns goes up, right? It's a pretty clear kind of thing. I don't doubt that what we're seeing is also a product of things that are beyond social media. There's no doubt that a coarsening, a flattening of conversation, those things might be going on quite apart from social media, but I can't help but feel like it's the gun in this situation that makes it all too easy. I mean, just to give an example of anybody who's ever been on Twitter, you know, 280 characters can be very difficult to, to develop any nuance in an argument. It's just the way in which that is set up. Even Facebook, you know, for example, which would allow you 
you know, the ability to write something longer on Instagram, you know, write a longer post. These aren't the kinds of fora where it's, you know, jostled amongst dozens of other things competing for your attention. Um, this isn't like reading and writing a letter 50 years ago. I don't believe or subscribe to the technologically deterministic view that technology as itself radicalizes people. Like you were saying, there's the argument guns don't kill people, people kill people. It acts as an accelerator. Certainly what I found is that on Fascist Forge, and I'll use this as an example because I spent the most time on that one platform. These people have fought these views for a long time, longer than five years ago when Iron March was around. They've had them for a long time. But what I think that social media has done in combination with like the election of Trump, Brexit, has made people feel more comfortable to express more extreme views because there's more extremism on big like tech social media platforms. So I feel they probably feel more comfortable now to come out and express their really intense neo-Nazi views because it's more acceptable now. Um, and that is, again, the exposure of social media to people. Like Matthew was saying, do you think these people would have been exposed to QAnon like 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Probably not. <laughs> I think that's true. Although I do have one caveat, you know, this, for example, we're seeing a lot of racism, instances of racism captured on video. And it goes to the question, again, not precisely what, what Ashton is saying, but you know, is there more racism in the world? You know, again, I do think that there's something to be said for Maybe there's less, but it's being captured more because we have the ability to, you know, to film it and, and disseminate it. You know, so I think that there are various pu push and pull factors. It would be nice to think that we're seeing more racism, but there's actually less around, if you, if you see what I mean. It gets captured more. People are shocked by it. They get out their phones and they record it. Um, now, in all of that, again, social media can, can play a quite virtuous role. And that's, a, you know, an important and excellent thing as well. I tend to agree, though, with, with Ashton, is that social media perhaps plays to some of the least honorable aspects of human nature. Let's put it that way. Thank you very much. That was Matthew Feldman and Ashton Kingdom on accelerationism and far-right violent extremism. Before we conclude this podcast, we wanted to learn a bit more about the increased media attention that's been given to accelerationism and its online manifestation. To better comprehend this rise in reporting on accelerationism and why it matters, we are also welcoming Ben Nakush into this episode. Ben is national security reporter with Vice News. He has been investigating and writing about far-right violent extremism, especially neo-Nazism, for the past years. He has written a number of articles on aftermath and division and the base. Both are US-based neo-Nazi groups, which have been playing a key role in bringing accelerationists back in fashion amongst violent extremists. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So accelerationism has gathered quite a lot of media attention lately. As a journalist yourself, especially one so versed in the extreme far right, why do you think that accelerationism has experienced this increased attention? Well, I think right now, obviously, a lot of the time people wonder what the far right is going to do. And I think one thing you have to remember is that they're part of our society as much as you and I are. So when they're experiencing something as cataclysmic as the pandemic, which has caused several governments to have sort of adverse reactions to something that's really generational and, and shakes the very foundations of our society, they see it always in the terms of how do we take advantage of things? Because this isn't new among neo-Nazi terror organizations going as far back as something like the Order in the 80s or even the Aaron Republican Army in the 90s. And now we have groups like Adam Waffen Division in the base. And through my own reporting, I've seen them, I've seen them discussing things online together as early as last summer, discussing whether or not they should take advantage of some of the unrest around the tensions between Iran and the U.S. government. So this has always been something they look at as a possibility. And right now, when you look at something like the pandemic, and the economic strife that's been caused by it. Also, the increased attention from law enforcement around fears that this could turn into something more, more difficult just on a day-to-day on -day basis on the streets of, say, somewhere like New York City or, or other places in the United States specifically. They see it as a, as a complete opportunity to sort of advance their goals and to hasten the collapse of society through 
acts of death by a thousand cuts. It's sort of this, this, this idea of, of attacking society in a way that will help it fall apart. And I think when you look at something like the pandemic, if, if you're them, this is this is a great opportunity. So if I if I understand you right, you're saying, you know, this is about real life trends in society uh, and it's important to focus on the offline component of that. So to what extent would you say that extreme far right actors are keen to promote what they're doing and to some extent to get publicity from it? And, you know, how would you describe that symbiosis? I would describe it almost as as identically to the way in which uh, a jihadist terrorist organization has operated in the past. I mean, these are groups that that look look at it the same way. I mean, media attention and and publicizing what they do is is an important component of being a terrorist organization. Period. So if you look at something like the base, I mean, one of their foundings was was to use Twitter accounts to to spread propaganda and to also spread their con- their contact information. You know, they would they would tweet you know something as as, as sort of insidious as how to how to stab someone and kill them properly, how to slash someone and kill them properly. And then would also provide their, you know, if you want to join the group, here's our WordPress account, here's our Proton Mail email address. So when it comes to that sort of thing, I mean, their tech is always a very important, a very important tool. I mean, before if you look at something like Al Qaeda, Al Qaeda used used advertisements in magazines to get people to join the Mujahideen in, in, in Afghanistan to fight the Soviets. And I think if you look at the evolution of that, ISIS clearly in 2014 used, used social media very prolifically. And, and then not long after, you have these neo-Nazi accelerationist groups that looked at social media and the ways in which they publicized their, their, uh, their acts of terror, but also their training, their numbers. They become more attractive to, to a potential recruit. So right now, I think if you're looking at something like Telegram, there's been an awful lot of chatter at least initially around how to take advantage of, of the pandemic. And you had individuals saying, you know, go and shoot your, your guns across the, the roofs of, of buildings in urban centers to cause fear and pandemonium. So I think when it comes to the far right actors, they're, they're using social media in much the same way you'd, you would have seen any terrorist organization use it in the past, except in this case, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the various applications that they're still allowed on. And, and can find recruits from. That, that's really interesting. So, you know, a lot of the work, a lot of work we do at Tech Against Terrorism, of course, we're we are monitoring, we're researching, we're trying to understand uh, how terrorists and violent extremists are using the internet, social media, etc., and all those sorts of sites. But something that often strikes us as interesting is um, a lot of the activity that we come across is kind of like at the operational level. It is sort of in-group communications, sometimes some attempts to kind of reach out and to recruit others. However, in many cases, often this content has only really become viral once mainstream media has sort of surfaced it. So my question is, as, as a responsible journalist, how do, you, how do you deal with striking the right balance here? Because it, it's uh, perhaps not impossible to imagine this scenario in which the mainstream may not be aware of a particular ideology or group until it starts being publicized. So, so what, what responsibility do you think mainstream media has to strike that, that the right balance in this? Because it seems to me that that's really very difficult. I mean, it's an extremely difficult question that I think is something that I've been dealing with since my reporting started on, on terrorism in, in 2013, 2014, when I was looking at something like ISIS. It's. I mean, it's very important that you're not amplifying what they're doing, but at the same time, you also have to start warning the public if something, if something very serious or a group that is that has emerged that is not just you know some, some trollish group that's just a Nazi brigade of guys who who mean nothing. But if these these individuals have a violent past, a history of being looked at by law enforcement agencies or or the intelligence community, at that point, you have to understand that this is much more than just you know, trolls on Twitter getting together and, and saying that saying awful things about people of color or, or Jewish people. This has now become something more organized and something you need to keep an eye on. So for me, I always weigh that balance of whether or not the group itself is dangerous. And I think that that's, that's something to, to bear in mind. Now, the other thing too, is that do you take exactly what they're saying and reprint it? Do you, do you take them saying, you know, we, we uh, for example, we believe in the, the path of the fear. Do I write that into an article? No. But do I look at how big their numbers are, where where they see themselves. How do you, how do you situate a group like this within the context of of, of danger and threat to to public safety and national security? 
I mean, this is something that's 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 really fundamental to reporting on on this, and it's 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 difficult because, you know, the terrorists, uh, like like I said, there's a history of them using media to 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 show their to show who they are and what their group is, and I think I'll give you an example. I I spoke to an individual in ISIS in 2014, and uh, they told me that they were planning attacks in Canada. And the rest of their conversation was was you know sort of the, the typical the typical terrorist bluster that I think we all come come to know if you if you if you research this daily, and I was sort of stuck in this position where that hadn't been said yet by ISIS that they were planning attacks in Canada, and this individual was a bona fide operator within the Islamic State, and I didn't want to amplify what they were saying, but I also needed to warn the public so. I was left with having to, to publish an article on this and, and understand what's going on and, and, and then notify authorities to say, this is what's happened. This person's told me this, that they're an ISIS operator. What is your comment on the story? You know, two weeks later, there was a, a major attack on, on Parliament Hill where an ISIS sympathizer went and shot up the uh, a, a war memorial that tragically killed a soldier and then also went into, you know, our halls of power in Canada and, 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 and attempted to enter the House of Commons to, to kill members of parliament and other individuals. And he was, he was eventually apprehended. But all to say is that when I was publishing that story, to me, it was important that I understood that the public knew that Canada was also part of this coalition of targets that ISIS saw as aggressive states. And I think, you know, when you look at something like that, you have to be able to, and I, I think the, the far right is very similar. If they're if there are bona fide operators doing things that are that are potentially violent and dangerous towards society, it's important to to warn the public. And I think that that's something that that reporters in this beat uh, are keenly aware of. And indeed, it's a vital role that you play, and it's, it's very important that that you're, you're able to do so. What evolution have you noticed over the past few years in terms of far right violent extremism, uh, both in society and online? Well, in society, I would say I think one of the one of the scarier things I think for me is that you know I, I've I've studied the history of this very closely, and and you know the idea of a group of angry uh, neo-Nazi white supremacists getting together and forming a terrorist cell and attempting to carry out violence or terrorism on behalf of this cause and this worldview it's actually not new. You know, this is something that goes back, like I said, at least in this form of cellular paramilitary style units of individuals meeting in person and creating these bonds and these sort of these, this perspective to carry out violence. This is something that's happened as early as the eighties with, with Bob Matthews and the order after the publishing of something called the Turner diaries in the seventies, which, you know, which is a famous an infamous novel that, that has inspired so much white supremacist terrorism. Then you fast forward to the nineties and you have the Aaron Republican army. And then you have people like Timothy McVeigh who carried out what was the worst act of, of domestic terrorism in the United States before 9-11 at the Oklahoma City bombing. And you understand that this is something that's happened before, this, these such as cellularized neo-Nazi groups. But if you look at now in 2020 and, and over the last five years, the amount of groups that have popped up and have organized under these principles to varying degrees of seriousness, some, some being extremely serious, some being less serious. I mean, it's, 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 it's honestly, it's astonishing to see the amount of groups that have come up. And I think that is something that is very telling of the society we're in that suddenly I think these sort of extremely nasty forms of, I mean, not that white supremacism isn't nasty, it's extremely nasty, but neo-Nazism and accelerationism and sort of this genocidal idea of white nationalism is, is particularly malicious and p- particularly prone to being used for terrorism. That is, that has really erupted in, in the last little while. And that's something that I think people need to really understand. That's really good to understand more about. And I appreciate this is a, a vast oversimplification, but to, to what extent would you say that the, the rise of the extreme far right is because there are there are simply more people who are aggrieved and hold these extremely uh, uh, abhorrent views? Or is this more about their ability to organise or a combination of the two? I think, you know, I actually would say... I think their ability to organize and use the internet, just like everything else in society, we're able to coherently unite across 
any geographic location. And I would say even more importantly, you could unite over, over uh, the, the geographic distances of a country, right? Look at something like the United States. The internet's very important for organization. It's a big country, but it's big enough that you can't see someone, most people, you know, if you're in New York and the other person's in LA and it's a big distance, right? But it's, you're able to, to unite and to, and to organize using the internet. And I think that's just something that society needs to deal with. But, but I think one of the bigger things is right now we have an aggrievement, particularly with young, angry men who are millennials. And and now we're also seeing Gen Z as well, where a lot of these people have been raised into society. They think that they're not prepared for, they think that they've been let down. And then also you mix into that something like economic downturn and a pandemic. And it, it really is a, a, a dangerous cocktail of, of both societal aggrievement, but also actual social decay. I mean, this is, we all know that there's, there's a lot going on in our society right now that it, it wasn't what it used to be. And I think, again, like I, 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 the point I made earlier, these far-right individuals are also part of our society because they're experiencing the same things and they're reinterpreting it with their worldview. And I think right now we're at a particularly bad moment. So I think if you look back in the 80s and the, around the time of Bob Matthews and the Order, there weren't as many per capita groups as there are now. And I think that that's something to keep in, keep in mind is that this is a moment where there are a lot more groups, even with the population that we have and, and how it's grown. And, and thinking about the specifics of the ideology that you're seeing, what, what proportion of this relates to accelerationism in particular? I would say if you look at accelerationism and, and sort of this hardcore version of, of neo-Nazism, it, it, it is a smaller percentage of the, the far-right militants. It's not, I wouldn't say it's all of them, because you know, look at something like the Boogaloo movement, which pulls in different political ideologies and political perspectives, but also you look at something like the militia movement, which is much more far-right. They're not, they're not accelerationists, but accelerationists you know they, they exist in the thousands online and on telegram and and i think they also probably exist in the thousands in real life as well and that percentage is high enough and they have you know they have their they have their ideologies they've got their books they've got you know i would say much like you looked at something like isis and al-qaeda and they have a whole ideology of of, of individuals they refer to, to to create their worldview the accelerationist neo-Nazis have that as well. And, and that's, and I think that's something that's, that codifies the way they think and codifies their, their, their organizational structures. So Ben, you mentioned Boogaloo and Boogaloo obviously got a lot of media attention mm-hmm. um, recently. Just how dangerous are they? Are, are they, are they, is it a violent group? Do they belong in the same category as the accelerationists? I mean, how, do, how can we make sense of this? There are, in fact, dangerous people with guns going out to, to, to protests and, and they're, they're wearing a certain type of shirt, they're wearing certain types of patches, they're, they're, they're organizing to some extent. And I think also, you know, anytime you get this amount of people together with guns in the public, I mean, we've seen recently there's been militias that have gotten together and someone let off a stray. And I think those types of things are very dangerous. And, you know, I, I think generally when you get a bunch of people together that are particularly anti-government and they at least look like they have the propensity to be militant, there's, there's a chance for things to go poorly. Uh, and, and I think that that itself is dangerous. Boogaloo, whether or not it's organizing under, under real codified principles of taking down the state in a violent manner, I, I haven't seen that yet. And I also think, like I said, it's pooling from a lot of different political ideologies it's not just the far right. I would say it's predominantly far right. I think that that's, that's very clear. But, you know, you're also seeing some, some groups like Red, Redneck Revolt type individuals who are, who are part of it. And, you know, I think that, that they are, they're a threat. I, I, I don't want to downplay them. Uh, and I, think, I believe that even there was a, a three individuals who, who attacked a security guard in, I believe, California. And they, were, they, they ascribed to... to the Boogaloo movement. So it's, it's, it, it certainly is possible. And I think, especially when you have that widespread of a, of a, uh, of a movement that, you know, you could have some violent individuals within it. But if we're looking at it from a counterterrorism perspective, I think, you know, it's, it's best to look at the, the groups and the accelerationists, because I think they're the ones that are truly trying to plan something. And, you know, if you look at the, you know, the very recent history of FBI crackdowns, 
you know, stunning FBI crackdowns in, in January and February of the base and Adam Waffen division, you understand that you know, there were and there have been groups in America who have been planning real serious terroristic violence and you know they're not wearing boogaloo patches and those individuals don't subscribe to to the boogaloo makes sense so where would you draw the line because one of the challenges that many of the tech platforms we work with have is figuring out well what groups cross that line of acceptability what what would you say those should be and and how should that be grounded in in democratic values for example well, the great thing about being a reporter is I have the luxury of not not having to prescribe what's what what should be done. <laughs> I get to I get to report on what's happening and figure out what things are of interest to the public. And I would say something like Boogaloo, the ways in which it's been spread online. I mean, it it's certainly I think the evidence will show. And I have a colleague here at Vice who's done some excellent reporting on on the Boogaloo. Her name's Tess Owen, and she's you know she's very clearly shown that. On places like Facebook and elsewhere, you know, I would say sort of these, you know, the more open platforms, the Boogaloo movement has taken in a lot of a lot of people saying some violent things. And I think that if that's happening, tech companies and governments need to be aware of that, because you look at something like, again, the rise of ISIS and some and even the rise of the alt-right. I mean, a lot of the rise of the alt-right, I originally reported on on whites, white nationalists or white supremacists, they wouldn't call themselves this, uh, street groups called the Soldiers of Odin in 2017. And they were organizing on Facebook and that's how they started. So it, w- it would have been very easy for Facebook to go on and see this, you know, some of the hate speech that was going on and, and stem it. But it didn't and it, and it grew. And I think like if you look at something like Boogaloo Movement, it's clearly pooling in a very similar perspective of people who are, saying some pretty terrible things and, and, and talking about doing some terrible things. So I think that that's something to keep an eye on. And where do you think this is going, especially at the moment in the US, uh, North America in general, seems to be quite a febrile environment politically. How, how would you see the extreme far right playing into this uh, as we see the US presidential elections coming up? I think, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not alone in thinking this. And I know places like the FBI are are openly worried about this is that what the far right will do with the election and I think I think that that's something that really keep an eye on I think you know for me I I've, I've kept such a close eye on groups like Adam Waffen division in the base and of that ilk and these are these are fairly you know they can be quite intelligent in the way that they view politics in their moment and how they could take advantage of it I think you know I don't want to fear mongers I don't I don't I don't know exactly what groups like that would do. But I'll tell you that the social unrest here in America today is, I mean, this is this is unprecedented. And the division that's been going on over the last four years or so has been fueling this divide. And and right now, if, you know, if if, you, if we get into a situation where President Trump tries to dispute the legitimacy of the election, and these are sort of the moments that accelerationists dream of. And I think that that's something that, you know, if I were in a law enforcement agency or an intelligence community member, I would be keeping an eye on that uh, very keenly. I'm, certainly as a reporter on this beat, I'm going to be looking at this very closely. And my reporting is surrounding that entire, <laughs> that entire philosophy of what will happen in the next three to four months. And are we anticipating the right things? You mentioned the FBI crackdown on Atom Buffin Division, and you also recently wrote an article about the newly announced National Socialist Order, which has been formed by a former member of Atom Buffin Division. Can you develop a bit on that and on what it, does it mean to accelerationists? So I think the, the more significant thing, I mean, the numbers and, and the size of National Socialist Order or NSO, right now I'm monitoring them. It's certainly something to keep a group to keep an eye on. But I think in terms of this, this moment, what that particular source told me that I found more interesting, and it was a piece of information I wanted to get out to the public, was that they were less concerned about using the pandemic and the, the cultural moment that we're in for violence. And they were much more interested in using the strife for recruitment. And that says a lot about an organization that, that previously was 
you know, linked to Adam Waffen Division, which is you know, a violent neo-Nazi accelerationist organization. If they're saying that they're seeing sort of this social decay and they're saying, we don't want to take advantage of it, but we do want to recruit from it. That means that they're seeing the, the potential for those types of political ideologies to, to expand. And I think that that's something that, you know, that's, that's a striking thing for me because it means that, and, and I, to be honest with you, I don't think that they're wrong. I think that, that these, these types of terrible moments in human history have attracted people to extremist ideologies. And I think that that is something that, you know, the law enforcement agencies and intelligence community need to, need to, to truly, they need to listen to that and, and, and find ways to thwart that from happening, because I think that, that that's, a, that's a real problem. Thank you very much, Ben. That's all for today's discussion on accelerationism. But we will be back soon with another episode. In the meantime, find us on Twitter at Tech vs. Terrorism.